Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 87 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from a messy desk. Joe Eames. Howdy. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Alex Russell. Oh, hi. I'm happy to be 87th in line. There you go. Do you want to introduce yourself, Alex? Sure. Hi, my name's Alex. I work on the Blink team at Google, and I'm trying to help fix the offline problem for the web. Previously, I've worked on very large JavaScript frameworks, and have done some standard stuff. I helped start the team here at Google that has been putting together the web components work, which you might have heard of. And I serve on ECMAT TC39, the group that is working on JavaScript as standard, and on the W3C technical architecture group, where we're trying to help make sure that the APIs that you deal with next are the ones that you like, and not the ones that you hate. Awesome. Hurrah! <laughs> well, no hurrah just yet. We'll see how it goes. Someone intelligent on the committee... <laughs> oh, they're all intelligent. Hey, 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 hey. Let's, let's be clear. Everybody who no, works no. on standards is intelligent. It's just often that we tend to be data poor. Experience is a, is a good teacher, and it's hard to distribute. I realize that in recent days, like the people that are working on the standards are really top-notch people, and probably the ones that have worked on it in the past were just not in the right industry to be making the standards. I also realize it's really hard because the web is stuck the way it is, and so you can't just... Like, even being a very intelligent and understanding the web really well, you can't go in there and make it work because it's already broken so bad from before. I mean, I'll agree to some of that, but I think this is just as important. The people who make browsers are roughly the people who make standards, and the people who make browsers don't get hired to make browsers because they were amazing web developers. You don't sort of level up at the end of the web development thing, and suddenly uh, you get handed a C++ compiler and a Git check. That's not how it works, right? You get hired to work on a browser because you're the gnarliest badass at C++. And they like let chumps like me in occasionally. So that means the people who populate these processes tend to have affinities for the underlying system and not necessarily for the day-to-day of building a thing, right? And early on in the web's history, it couldn't have been any other way. There weren't a lot of web developers, right? No one had been doing it for 10 years. So you had a lot of people sitting around trying to invent a thing the best they could. But now we're in a place where we can start to use our experience and the data that we've got about what works and what doesn't to go influence that process from a more practitioner-based perspective. And that's a voice that we haven't had, I think, enough of in the process of building most of these standards for a long time. So a lot of what I care about is making sure that web developers' interests are represented at the various standards bodies and working groups. Because, like I said, a lot of times people want to do the right thing, and they're the right people to do those things, but they may not be able to tell whether or not one of many options is the right one. They just don't have the experience of building things. Well, I was definitely excited the day that I noticed that they have the MooTools dollar sign and double dollar sign operator in Chrome, like just part of Chrome. That was kind of neat. Oh, in the DevTools? Yeah. Yeah, the DevTools are largely written in JavaScript. I think this is actually one of those big things that's going to transform the world in terms of building better APIs, is that the more that we get people who are building browsers to be people who write in JavaScript for part of their day, the better we'll do. Like, our batting average will go up in terms of designing APIs that don't suck. 
you really don't get the flavor of a language. Like, you can sort of read the spec and sort of see how it might work, but you don't really get the flavor for what does and doesn't work in practice until you go write a bunch of it. And asking someone who's a busy C++ hacker to go do that every day without it having an impact on their day-to-day work output is probably a non-starter. So, you know, I could go and sit at all of my colleagues' desks and say, write me 2,000 lines of JavaScript right now, but they would not very kindly tell me to go uh, stuff myself. (laughs) And they'd be right. But if we turn the task of building a browser into something like self-hosting a bunch of JavaScript code, then we're in a much better spot. So that's what I'm excited about. You know, you sound very well-educated about this topic. I was curious what your background is like before you were doing what you're doing now. So how far back do you want to go? I'm older than I see. To birth. Oh, to birth. (laughs) Um, Start with the dinosaurs. It was uneventful. I don't remember much. I worked out of school doing web application security and network security and sort of did JavaScript stuff on the side and sort of building JavaScript libraries because you sort of need that eventually. And eventually wound up getting a gig doing JavaScript in 2000, I think, three or four, full-time, which was astonishing to me. There's, there was no such thing as a JavaScript job in 2003 or 2004. I don't know if you remember, but there was this ragtag fugitive group of us who were still writing JavaScript on the side for fun and not much for profit. And we started putting together our tools and sort of comparing. And a bunch of these things were open source, but you know it was just a small group of people hanging out on internet forums, if you remember those. And much of which is now lost to history, thank goodness, because we were children. (laughs) And eventually, the day job started to need better and better tools. And so together with a bunch of like-minded folks, we put together the Dojo project. And this is literally like pre-the Ajax thing. You know, we were trying to build BI dashboards with charting and graphing and, you know, doing lots of data analysis on the client side. You know, and it had to work on... uh, Firefox 1.0, which was the new modern thing, and IE 5.5. So that was the challenge. And so we put together the Dojo project. And of course, history happened. And Dojo was a tool for people who had big problems and knew it. Turns out that's not most people. And that's all right. And eventually, I went to Google to work on a product called Chrome Frame, which is where they were foolish enough to let me start writing C++ for a living. And so I joined Google specifically to work on Chrome Frame and did that for a couple of years and then have been working more in the how do we evolve the web as a platform thing for probably the last two or three years, starting with a bunch of work around web components. Dimitri Glaskov and I sort of led a team to help put together what we're now seeing come out of browsers as Shadow DOM, web components, the template element, and some changes to JavaScript. And now my focus is shifting more towards sort of the general question of how do we improve the quality of of specs overall and this service worker thing. So how do we make applications that work really, really offline and make them work as well as native apps do offline? That's that. That's me. That's really cool. We got you on the show to talk about TC39 in particular, and it sounds like that's kind of a major part of what you were just talking about, where you're trying to make you know the web better and make JavaScript better and things like that. Do you want to explain a little bit about what TC39 is and you know why it's important? Sure. So for those who don't know, TC39 is the cryptic code name for the European Computer Manufacturers Association, or ECMA, which is the standards body's subgroup, which works on JavaScript, the standard. So TC39 produces something called ECMA 262, which is the thing that every JavaScript implementation sits down to implement. Obviously, they have to do more than that because the web is, you know, got lots of extra stuff that's outside the language specifically. But TC39's job is to evolve JavaScript, the language. And so 
My interests there and those of a, a lot of the newer members of the committee are to try to improve the language in ways that get more bang for the buck in terms of web developer productivity. You know, there's a lot of things we could add and there's a lot of things we could change. Obviously, we're constrained by backwards compatibility, which is a really, really heavy burden. But the ability to say what you mean in JavaScript is something that I'm particularly interested in. And it's something that I think the committee has done an okay job of in the past, but has not focused on with regards to, you know, the web developer perspective. So that's where I'm coming from. Because, you know, you build systems that need to scale a little bit, and you kind of eventually get yourself into a place where the primitives that JavaScript gives you don't let you compose large systems, and they don't give you natural tools for doing it. We've got some really great things coming in the next version of the language that are going to help out there. The first is a, a class syntax. And the class syntax is not classes. It's not Java classes. It's not classes as you know them from any other language. They are JavaScript's prototypal inheritance, but it's just sugar over them. But when you look at it, it reads like a thing that you can make one of using the new keyword. And so that's incredibly exciting to me. And the other thing that's really exciting to me is the modules specification. So modules are a way for you to put together a bunch of code and import it and have the transitive dependencies all loaded for you. And it'll look like it's synchronous, right? So you'll say import blah from whatever. But because we're in the language and not using a library, we're not having to sort of work around the language's limitations, we can actually make that loading asynchronous, but make the execution of it appear synchronous from the perspective of the code that's loading somebody else's module. And so this is the one thing that, that the language can do is to use syntax to sort of move the posts that you can't really do unless you are a compiler or a preprocessor. You don't really have the ability to go take those opportunities and turn them into things that are good for end users. And I think that's what the committee should be doing a lot of. And I'm grateful that we're doing a lot of it in ECMAScript 6. I guess there are a couple of questions that I have about TC39 and the way that it works. But Shoot. one of the things that really comes in that I, I wonder about, and AJ kind of talked about this when he was talking about, you know, backwards compatibility and things. And backwards compatibility has backwards in it. And some of the stuff that we used to do on the Internet doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. But we still have to support that stuff. So do you try and make decisions with the things that we do moving forward with an eye to that? And do you find that it limits the decisions that TC39 is able to make regarding the language? Yes and yes. So TC39 is hugely constrained by the ability to not change the language, right? So you could imagine that there are a bunch of tools in the toolbox when you're trying to evolve a language. And one of them, it's a big hammer, is that you can just get people to opt into a new mode. Right. You can say script type text slash JavaScript.next or something like that, right? Or you could, as we had with ES5, have the use strict pragma, which puts you into a brand new mode of operation in which the things that you think you know can change and new syntax can be introduced without a lot of worry. But those things have a real price. It's very difficult to reason about code that has lots of modes in it. And at some point, you're not really talking about the same language. So this is an active debate, but it's been settled for ES6 in favor of not adding any new modes. Uh, the tagline is, is 1JS, which means that the set of things that we can do must be fully backwards compatible. That doesn't mean that you should be able to use all those things from old browsers, but it means that we can't change anything that you could write. Any code that would have run before must run still. So that takes a lot of options off the table in terms of adding new stuff and the form of the new things that we can add as well. That's okay, though. I think that 
having that responsibility towards continuity is just something that you bite off when you've got a really successful platform. And I think for as much as people kind of are frustrated about the web, the one thing to remember is that it's probably the world's most successful platform anywhere ever, which is why I'm interested in working on it. Web developers don't settle for having a billion users, right? So that means that like, okay, well, what about people on a Windows phone or people on you know, a Mac, right? You don't sort of think about that as a web developer. You sort of think about the entire world as a set of users that you could potentially be addressing. And you don't really think about devices. I mean, you do. You think about the constraints of those devices, but you don't really think about specific devices if you're doing it right. And the web maintaining that reach is something that ECMA T39, I think is doing a pretty good job of. Gotcha. Are there features that you guys are kind of working toward that you're kind of slowly going after because you can't just jump ahead that fast? So the real challenge with adding any new feature to a language, specifically syntactic, is that you kind of have to integrate it. Like, you can't just sort of throw something in. Like, um, let me give you an example. So there are two new operators in ES6 called spread and rest, and you'll see them as dot, dot, dot. You'll see something dot, 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 or dot, 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 something. And they are shorthands for expanding and contracting arrays. And so you don't have to do things like dot apply anymore. You can just use dot 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 to in place expand an array of stuff, which is really, really, really nice. It's an outstanding convenience. But any place that you can add that dot 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 is something that we have to go consider with regards to the grammar productions and the syntax and semantics of what you could have done there before. And we have to make sure not to break anything. So there are cases where in order to enable certain features, we have to go think through all of the cases in which those new features might interact with other features in the language. So the one that always totally Fs us in the ear is something called automatic semicolon insertion. You know, you've seen the fad for leaving semicolons off. This is ASI. And ASI is a a language designer's nightmare. It's kind of like the comma operator in C++. It means that sometimes you'll write some bad code and it'll look like it's doing the right thing because it'll mostly work. And then you change it a little bit and then it doesn't work. That's kind of bad news. And you can see why it happened and you can see why someone added that. But now we're stuck with it. And so that means anywhere that you might cross a new line, you have to think about the implications of a new line interacting with, you know, ASI. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> I don't recommend you do this for fun. But I do recommend that if you find yourself with some free time and a lot of interest that you do get involved. One of the things that's been really productive in the last couple of years, DC39 has been getting more people with a web development background to be part of the committee. So we've got a lot more representation now from some folks from Facebook, Yahoo, many Googlers, and Yehuda Katz from jQuery and Rick Waldron from jQuery are showing up on a regular basis. And that has been a huge boon to changing the terms of the debate in favor of making the cut for each of these decisions in a way that sort of favors what web developers would imagine would be the right thing to do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like you kind of have to predict your users a little bit here. You can't go invent something so totally aliens. I mean, you can count on it effectively being the de facto thing, but you can't sort of just be like, ah, we're going totally to the right here when before we were zagging to the left. And having that influence has been incredibly productive. But yeah, in terms of big features we're working towards, modularity, right? Being able to structure your code in a way that feels like it meant to live together. Today, we have no concept of that. And there are a bunch of really interesting things around doing that. Defining the event loop. So, you know, if you write something in C, at the core of your application, you'll have this little while one. You'll have an event loop and you'll dispatch things to threads as you need to. Or you'll take an event loop from someplace else that seems really productive and you'll use that. The web sort of has an implicit event loop, and now we've got a bunch of things contending for it. So set timeout was the first of those, right? And set interval. 
But now we've got request animation frame, and we're going to have object.observe, and we're going to have mutation observers in the DOM, actually, which are shipping in Firefox and Chrome now. And all of those things would like to have a very tight relationship to when JavaScript code execution ends. And the spec has always sort of assumed that you're going to write some code and it's going to run top to bottom, right? There is no idea of another turn. There's only sort of, there's your program and, and now we're done. It's been a very, very simple language. But in the web context, there's always been this kind of implicit cooperation with an event fires and now we start a new turn and some code runs. And that's the thing that's been outside of JavaScript as spec, but has been inside the DOM. But nobody, because it isn't anybody's particular business, has really sat down to define that. And that's something that we're probably going to sort of bite off defining when we add object observe in ECMAScript 7. So that's one of those big things. It doesn't seem like it's really important, but until we have it defined, until we actually sit down and do the archaeology of figuring out how that thing is supposed to work, it's very difficult for us to provide you the control that you need to go do things with high performance that might need to cooperate with the event loop. So, for instance, data binding. Object.observe is a feature that we kind of developed, Raphael Weinstein developed uh, with Adam Klein and Eric Arvidsson to enable high-performance data binding, like the sort you're seeing in Ember and in Angular and in the MDB library that we're shipping as part of Polymer. Those data binding scenarios need you to be able to see a consistent state of the world, and that means waiting until JavaScript is done executing, and then we'll notify you of things that have changed in the environment. Like, that's the only sort of sane model. And to get that, we have to sort of have an idea of when JavaScript is done executing and what it means to be doing something before the end of the turn or the next turn, and we don't have that today. Wait, explain that a little bit better, because I'm not clear on what you're saying. We don't have a way to right, right. do that. So today, if I say request animation frame, I'm going to get called back in just before the browser swap buffer, right? Before it decides to go paint something. And if I say set timeout or set interval, the browser is going to put a thing on a timer queue, and it's going to, at some time in the future, usually sometime more than 13 milliseconds from now, call me back. Does that make sense? But yeah. there's no way today to sort of hook into the time that you could describe as when JavaScript is done running, right? When your code is fully off the stack and there's nothing else to do. But before I go back to the browser and say, hey, go update some DOM or paint some stuff or handle some input events, right? So because the browser is single-threaded and we have a single event loop, we all sort of are coordinating about it. And so you can imagine that the way it works when you're like dragging a mouse across a screen is that let's say you hover over a link and it needs to paint that thing as being underlined, right? At the same time, it's going to dispatch some on mouse over and on mouse enter events. And those might run some JavaScript. So now you have to define an order for those things. Well, okay, I run some JavaScript on mouse over. When does that happen with regards to that paint happening? And when I'm done with the JavaScript, can I do some work, right? Because I have to yield back to the event loop to let it go do the painting or to go do the other work. Does that make or, sense? Yeah, and tell me if this is also in the same realm. Like the idea of I want to make 15 separate DOM updates, but I don't want to make them when I make them. I want to make them when that round of execution is done. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So defining a, a hook for that time, which you can sort of just define if we were just sort of talking about it. We can like write it down on the whiteboard and be like, there's a time at which JavaScript is almost about to yield to the main loop and let it go paint stuff, but I want to do some work there. We could talk about that. And in our code, we could write down, look, I'm about to be done at every point where you might be exiting and go check and see if there's some work to do on a queue, but that's a real pain in the ass and nobody really does it that way. Uh, it'd be better if the system gave you a hook to do that, right? 
Have you used Connect or Express much? I haven't used them in Angular. I apologize. Okay. Because they have a system that maybe makes sense for this type of scenario where you define basically an array of modules. And every time an HTTP request comes in, it goes through the array. And like the top thing in the array is normally something like your cacher or your logger, which actually has the ability to overwrite the response. So it comes through the stack and everything has an opportunity to modify the things that are going to happen at the end. You do all of your work and then you call send to send the response and this is all Node.js server-side stuff. So you call send to send the response, and then it goes back through and hits all of those modules that had hooked in a second time. Yeah, that sounds very similar to what you would be able to do with Observe in this way. And so basically, anyway, one of the things we're trying to do here is define how all of these different things are sort of defined different buckets between mutation observers, a request animation frame, object.observe, and promise delivery which is something else that I've been working on, how they all interact with each other and when those buckets get filled and drained. That's just something that we have to define the event loop for. So that's something we're working towards as well. So you said promise delivery. Is there going to be some sort of promises spec that actually makes it into the language, like this is how we do JavaScript kind of deal? Yes, there is. I started working with a bunch of people almost a year ago now. God, this stuff moves so slow to try to come up with a consensus promises design. It eventually wound up being A-plus compatible. We sort of redid the design in April or May, and then a bunch of bike shedding happened. But the good news is that as of the Boston meeting, which I think was September, we have a design which is going to be in ECMAScript 6. So it'll be in the next version of the language. We're implementing in Chrome now. and I know that Firefox is implementing now. So promises as part of the standard are going to be in. Our initial tack was to go do it in DOM. So I worked out with Anna Van Kestren to get a version of Promises into DOM. And we've sort of leveled up from there to get them into the language proper, which is pretty badass, actually. Yeah, that is amazing. How many of the features that go into future versions of ECMAScript or JavaScript come from these ideas where somebody goes out and actually implements a library that does it? I think quite a few, right? If you look at the module system thing, you know, many languages have module systems. JavaScript has had many. I've built a couple. Eric Harvardson has built at least one. A lot of the folks in the room have been building module systems. You know, I worked with James Burke on Dojo, and Dojo eventually sort of, I guess, birthed a lot of the AMD work that's happening now. So modules are kind of a thing that we kind of know we need, and we've got a lot of experience with kind of the question of resolution. Yehuda Katz and Dave Herman have been doing the heavy lifting on ES6 modules, so all credit goes to them for getting it to the state that it's in now, and Jason Orendorf. But it's looking really good, and it sort of meets all of the needs, and it has all the pieces that you need to plug into it with to make your own kind of module system go. So if you want to build a module loader that can be compatible with AMD or with node modules, you can kind of do that. You kind of have to plug in a bootstrap to make that work. But the native module syntax is really nice as well. And so, yeah, kind of having the community experience feed into the requirements list is really one of the most important things. I think it's also worth cautioning, though, that one of the things that people often expect out of the standards bodies is that they are going to go and just rubber stamp somebody's library, right? Like, the question always comes up, why didn't you put jQuery into the DOM, right? And the answer is usually that you have more opportunities to do a good job when you can change the core of the system, and you would do things in a different way if you could change the core of the system, right? The, the designs that, you know, we came up with for libraries like in Dojo or in jQuery are just not designs that we would have come up with if we were able to change the whole thing. Like, if you actually go change DOM, you would just go put these methods on the DOM itself, right? You wouldn't go wrap everything. 
Those are the sorts of areas where you sort of have to redesign things to fit into the system well. And so what you're looking for is the experience of this is a really productive pattern. This is a really productive way to do it to work. This is a thing that I would like to be able to do. Unless the form of this is exactly how I want to do it. And so you hope that by having enough of the right people in the room, you can validate this stuff. And by doing early implementations and by doing like with ES6, Eric Arvidsson and John J. Barton, and to a very small degree myself, and Peter Hallam have worked on a system called Tracer, which is a transpiler. It lets you use ESX modules and classes and a bunch of these new spread and rest operators and a bunch of those sorts of things to write ESX code today and transpile it in JavaScript to ES5 code. So that can run almost everywhere now. And getting early experience with systems like that helps you validate whether or not this thing really works for you. And that tight feedback loop which we've also sort of had now with Web Components and the Polymer project. It's incredibly valuable in sort of helping you road test whether or not your new thing is going to actually fly. Because you think you have a good idea based on experience, but it's really nice to have some data behind the eventual system as well. That makes sense. I want to back things up just a little bit and talk about how does an idea, let's say promises or modules or something, when you want to put this into the language proper, what's the process for doing that? Does somebody make a proposal and then you talk about it and vote on it? Or is yep. it more complicated than that? Nope. We operate in TC39 under what's called the champions model, where if you're really hot under the collar about a particular idea or a particular technology, you come up with a proposal and you put it on the agenda for a meeting. And that does mean that you probably have to be at meetings in order to move something forward or find someone who is. But if you've got something that you're particularly passionate about, please reach out to me. I'm not hard to find online. There are lots of good ideas that are out of scope of, of JavaScript language, but there are other places where a similar model works, right? At the W3C, specifically at uh, WetWG, it's very easy to be a voice for a particular thing. The, the most important factor in success or failure of being an advocate is being able to find people who are implementers to work with you to go verify whether or not your idea will fly and then go and try and be reasonable, as reasonable as you possibly can and do the quiet behind the scenes shuttle diplomacy to get the people who are going to be most invested in your idea excited about your particular design. And that's not something you can force. And I, it's not a defense of smoke-filled rooms in any way. It's just an acknowledgement that standards are people. It's like soil and green, right? It's people trying to do the best they can. And they often need more information to do that than they have right now. And so the best thing you can do to try to advance the cause of a particular feature is to give those people that information or help them see it your way. Mm-hmm. And I have, there's no secret sauce to changing minds, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> But being a dick is probably a, a quick way to, to not change anybody's mind. Yep. How do most of these conversations happen? You mentioned meetings, but isn't there also a mailing list and things? Yeah, there is a mailing list, and it's relatively high traffic, ES Discuss. There's now esdiscuss.org, I think, which is an incredibly useful front end onto the mailing list. And ES Discuss summaries on Twitter give you a pretty good sense for the tenor of the debate, which is really good. It's worth noting that we're switching to a new process in ECMAScript 7, which I'm incredibly excited about. And this is all down to Raphael Weinstein, uh, the man behind Object.Observe and Mutation Observers and Tom. This new process looks a lot more like the train model that we use for Chrome releases, where new features get accepted. They're small and thought is once a year. There will be a new version of the spec. And if your feature didn't make it in, if it didn't get to the end of the process before that train left the station, then it'll just be on the next one. Because right now, the way we've been doing ECMAScript revisions has been these very long monolithic projects And I got initially involved in standardization for JavaScript in the battle days of ES4 
And I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but it was as bad as anybody says it was. I guarantee it. And it failed. Right? We had a release that totally failed. ECMAScript 4 never saw the light of day. It was huge. It was a multi-year effort, and it got us nothing. There were a bunch of targeted small fixes that came out of it for ES5, some of which have been, you know, over time shown to be great, some of which are a little bit problematic. But in general, ES5 happened because it was small and targeted. ES6 has taken a very long time, longer than any of us had expected or hoped. And part of that is down to that integration process that I was talking about earlier. You really do need to sit down and spend a bunch of time thinking of how each feature is going to interact with each other feature. And it's very difficult to do while you're designing a feature. So the idea here behind this new process is that we will get more complete features into the pipeline earlier and get them into drafts and see how they shake out. But sort of a one-year time frame gives you enough time to consider a bunch of things without having to stop the whole world when somebody wants to add something new, right? It's up to that person to then go try and do a bunch of the, that early integration. And you don't have to hold up the entire train of potentially done features, right? So the spread and rest operators have been done for a long time. Class syntax has been done at least for probably 8 to 12 months now. Those are things that probably could have shipped in a release that we didn't have a release ready to, to go out the door for. And there'll be an ES6, but it would be nice to not have to hold the line on features like that and give implementers the ability to go start putting stuff into their browsers early without the risk on the basis of a new full revision earlier rather than later. Are there things that you find that people kind of misunderstand or misconstrue about TC39 or ECMAScript or just this process in general? I mean, uh, where to start? (laughs) (laughs) What are kind of the big things or, or one or two of the big things? Okay, so let me start by saying that there's kind of a hierarchy of tool makers, right? And I've sat in many of these chairs. I haven't necessarily done them well. So you can critique me and my work on all of these levels, including the work that we're doing in T39 as being just bad. Uh, that's fine. But I think that the model holds, which is that you have people who are building just sites, right? You've got people who are building tools for people who build sites. You've got people who are building tools for people who build tools who are building sites. And then eventually you have people who are building the platform itself, right? And maybe those middle two tiers sort of fold into each other. It's hard to tell. But, you know, you get like NPM is a great example of a tool for people who build tools. And then node modules are a great example of tools. And then you've got people who are consuming them and putting them together into, into individual packages or, um, or products. The same thing holds true on the client side, right? You've got Bower, which is a tool for people who build tools, et cetera, et cetera. And so the language is kind of the, the slowest moving, one hopes, in some ways, but most powerful area for us to change, right? You can, you can make relatively small changes that have a very large impact uh, that's outsized to their, outsized to their, you know, kind of what you would expect to happen as a result of a relatively small change. But the result is that you have to serve a much larger constituency. At each of those um, levels, the set of people that you are trying to do right by gets larger. And so the conflicts potentially between those people and what they think is right gets larger. Does that make sense? If, if it's true that you can't please all the people all the time, that gets ever more true the larger the group of people is that you're trying to serve. And TS39 and most of the other web standards bodies are trying to serve the entire world, or at least the developers who have to build things for the entire world. So one of the pathologies that I think we see about people who are trying to just sort of jump in and, and change something in the standards world is that they assume that because something is important to them, it's important to everybody else. So one of the most important things you can bring to the discussion is empathy. You definitely need to have a view and be able to make a case based on what you think everybody else will need. 
you need to be able to sort of gather data. And data is sort of, you know, empathy is easy when people are telling stories, but the plural, plural of anecdote is not data, uh, I guess is the quote. And so gathering data and being able to make a larger story about what people are doing in aggregate is an incredibly powerful tool. It's sort of our best storytelling technique for making the case that something is an important feature for the web. So, for instance, the fact that all all of the JavaScript libraries that I can think of when they get to a particular size all grow their own module system lends incredible weight to the idea that we as a committee should go take that burden off of the tools themselves and go put it into language, right? It's a, it's a good argument for prioritizing modules over other things people might care about. Does that make sense? Like, so, so one of the misconceptions is that because it's important to you, it's important. And I think that's probably the tip of the iceberg, but, uh, but I'll, I, I guess I'll leave that one there. The other ones are to do with who's doing what and why. And I think it's just important to remember that the people who are working on these committees are, are people and they have particular experience and they've got shortcomings and faults like everybody else. And is you can expect more of them than you would maybe someone who's, who's sitting in a seat with less power. And you should call them out for doing things that are, in your view, destructive. But making change is the predicate for making things better. And so you should expect them to try to make change. And when they don't, I think that's the worst thing. And that's not usually what we get purloined for. <laughs> it's you, people are usually angry that we're not making changes in exactly the same way they would have. And I think, I think that's generally short-sighted. The, the long-sighted view is to suggest that we're not making enough change quickly enough. So one other question I have um, related to this, it seems like when we talk about a lot of this stuff around ECMAScript and JavaScript, most of the references you've made have been web-focused. And I'm wondering, do you do you take into consideration very often things like Node.js or some of these yeah, server-side systems? And Sure, absolutely. But it's worth noting that server-side systems have it easy. And I think this is an important point that, that usually gets lost in the debate, which is that if I'm building something for a server-side system, I generally speaking get to call the shots in terms of the deployment environment. I also get to call the shots in terms of often the hardware, or at least I can make reasonable con constraints about them. The available bandwidth to get code and to run code and the available CPU is, isn't necessarily infinite, but it's certainly knowable, if not individually, certainly in aggregate. This is the sort of thing that you have much less ability to change on the client. The client is a harder target and anybody who tells you that the server is harder is lying to you. Lying to you. I, I've been on both sides, uh, and I can tell you that they are lying to you. Uh, it's like someone who's a server engineer saying the client-side engineering isn't very, or that the building, building websites, that's just the HTML, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I happily have you come and build my three-column CSS that has to be compatible everywhere, right? That, that's, yeah. uh, let's, let's talk about that. So it's worth acknowledging that the different skills, they can all be hard. But the constraints that you've got in the server-side environment are generally easier. And so between being able to consume new features fastest, right, people who are using Node or are using other server-side uh, deployment environments for languages generally get to call the version of their VM. And that usually means that they get to use newer features faster until it's sort of like the pervasive thing, right? Like you might get stuck in a Java shop having to support Java 1.4.2 forever, effectively, certainly longer than a product lifecycle. But if you're working in Node, you almost always get to say, use the latest node, right? Use the latest NPM package. And they've done a good job insulating some of their users with semantic versions from some of that churn. But, but I think in general, it's just easier to, to come up with an environment and a deployment story that makes sense for you than it, than it is on the client. And so between there being many, many more web users 
and web developers than there are server-side JavaScript developers. And there being a much easier on-ramp to using new stuff on the server, I think we definitely owe the client as much attention as we can give it. In part because if you let the server's easier requirements dominate, you do things that are suboptimal for the client, which you just can't recover from, like you would be able to when you have more resources like you do on the server. So question, are there people that are on the committee that are core people in the Node community? The Node community has chosen not to represent itself, I think is the easiest way to put it. It would be great if someone from one of the large Node hosting firms were to sponsor someone from the Node community to come to meetings and advocate their view. Uh, we do try to be responsive to them, but I th- think it's worth noting that there's been a lot of a lot of back and forth about this and a lot of it comes down to different expectations about how things can run like the, the module system is in, in particular very contentious uh, in a way that i find frankly astonishing I the argument seems to be you guys shouldn't do a module system because then people will use it uh <laughs> it's like what <laughs> i thought that was the point i have noticed like a peculiar thing about the node community is there there are some people at the head of it that kind of had to have this anarchist attitude, which I think is really strange. Oh, that's fine. Um, and it's fine for them. But, it's, it's, uh, but, the, but, but the job uh, like, of the standards committee is to, is to serve everybody who's not them. Well, but see, here's a... Th- like, I would love to see some node representation in the committee. I mean, I guess if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. Maybe we can all just, like, all 20,000 people that listen in can just like at Joint and say, get someone from Node on the committee so that Node doesn't do crazy, awesome things that then cause problems and vice versa. Make sure that Node actually takes advantage of things that are coming down the pipeline. Cause like, it's I, worth noting I, that Node, Node has the opportunity to take advantage of new stuff just as soon as it's in V8. So, you know, they're privileged from that perspective. Like, Node gets the best of this stuff. So they would be an ideal testing lab and initial deployment environment for a lot of these new features. They would be sort of the best case scenario users of new language features. I just think it's been really strange how like Node's been around for a couple of years and there have been new browser APIs that have like solved the same problem as the Node APIs and like now Chrome's coming out with their kind of like not server side but if you will server side platform and so we have like these couple of different platforms that are like really really close and I would love it if everyone got in the same room and were like, oh, well, yeah, it's only, you know, two keywords different for us to do it this way than that way. Like the array buffer implementation or the module system or, you know, other small things like that that hugely, hugely affect your ability to reuse code. Yeah, I I think I have some some experience there. Like I, I built... I worked for a company called Jotspot for a while, where we were building an application platform cleverly disguised as a wiki. And it was JavaScript on the server side and JavaScript on the client, obviously. In 2000 and, well, God, was it six? <laughs> 2007? Uh, can you imagine? And it turned out that our ability to share code was relatively minimal because I guess at that point, clients weren't able to be nearly as modern as servers, although that's changing pretty rapidly. And at the same time, we, we did discover that the different constraints that you have, specifically about being able to load code quickly on the server, changed what you were willing to do. I hope that we can actually get to a point where we can share a lot more stuff uh, once we have the service worker implementation, because that'll let us more cheaply cache a lot of stuff that we'd like to be able to depend on in our apps. We don't have that yet, but it's coming. So... 
Yeah, I think there's a future where we'll share more stuff. You know, like I said, I hope that, like you say, the folks at Joint, the folks at other Heroku, other large node beneficiaries will find willing folks from that community to come help us out design and design things with us. But folks like Dominic Danicola, uh, who is pretty pretty well known in the node community, has definitely made the transition. He's helped us out uh, in terms of getting promises finally pushed over the line uh, late this year. So, you know, like I said, standards are just people. It's just people trying to do the right thing. And so to the extent that those people want to participate, it's generally the case that they can find a way to do it. Awesome. So overall, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what do you hope people kind of get out of the conversation that we've just had? Please don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> That's good advice for, for a lot of people out there. I feel comfortable saying mission, mission accomplished on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the way to put it that's maybe more tactful is that when it comes to making progress in the world, convincing everybody else that you're right is significantly more important than being right about specifics. You have to be right in general. Uh, you have to have sort of like the right shape of it. But getting everybody else on board is the thing that most people are, at least in, in our community, are, are less able to think of as being a good thing versus an absolutely correct technical answer based on all of the, all the particular constraints that you've got in front of you, right? The, the idea that you might get an answer that's good but not great and that that might still deliver enormous value is something that as trained engineers where you get zero points for getting the wrong answer, right? It's something that is very much a cultural norm that we have yet to build facility with. <laughs> does, that, does that dress it up enough? Just please don't be a dick. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Very nice. All right. Do you guys have any other questions before we get into the picks? I was kind of curious. What feature do you personally hope most makes it into JavaScript? Traits. So we got classes, but we have no composition mechanism for classes. Inheritance is a pretty weak is pre- a pretty weak sauce way to go build stuff. So the way that we build sort of large systems or that I've built large systems in JavaScript has been sort of a mix of inheritance and uh, mixins. And so mixins are sort of the way you do like other class dot call this in your constructor, if you know what I'm talking about, and you copy properties in. And that's a really productive way to go use composition instead of inheritance to, to construct aggregate things that are bigger. And if you're going to try and build a system that scales and not copy a lot of code and not have this sort of like terrible back pressure on an inheritance hierarchy where you wind up moving things up the inheritance chain just because some random subclass over there might need it too, composition is the, is the way forward. And JavaScript badly needs a composition mechanism. We didn't get it done in ES6. Uh, it was hard enough getting classes past some of the folks in the committee and for not, not the reason you'd imagine. But now that we've got them, we have an opportunity to do, do a good job by sort of putting together an official version of the mix-in pattern here, too. And I'm really excited about that potential. Awesome. So here's another kind of off-the-wall question. Which backwards compatibility do you hate issue do you hate the most? That is a good question. <laughs> You're going to have to give me a minute. <laughs> it's a very long list. <laughs> I, I want a blog post now. Just put the list on on a website somewhere. Yeah, really. These make me crazy, and here's why. (laughs) I think the one that that makes us least able to have nice things is automatic semicolon insertion, ASI. Yeah. So I have a question about that, because it seems like it's something that's built into the browser. Oh, no, no, I take it back. It's not ASI. It's got to be plus equal. It's got to be the plus operator. 
and a dot operator. Oh, dot operator. I'm sorry. Like I said, I can't choose. (laughs) (laughs) The dot operator is the craziest part of JavaScript. In in case it's not clear, the way dot works to to both dereference things and to set up the caller is super clever and super insane. It means that we can't ever have bound methods. You can't rely on them even if they are. And it just constrains our ability to to design other features in a way that that makes sense with regards to the thing on the left-hand side. What were those two things you mentioned? What what were the two parts? Oh, for for the dot operator? Yeah. Yeah. So so you know how other languages, if you have a class, you usually get bound methods? Yeah. Like, I can extract a method and call it, and it'll still have the this be the thing that I pulled it off of? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice. Uh, JavaScript doesn't work that way, uh, which Mm -hmm. means... That's not as nice. Yeah, passing callbacks around is a real pain in the ass. Um, so, so what is the two-minute version of how that works? The two-minute version of how... The dot calling notation works. Yeah, so, so the way dot works is that you have an object, and you say dot, and that extracts a thing on the right-hand side uh, using an index lookup. And then if there's prints, it calls it. But through magic, it doesn't just call it. It calls it and says, ah, the thing on the left-hand side of the dot over there is the thing that you're going to be called in the scope of, right? Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's that little it's that little magic. It's that little aha, wink, wink, nudge, nudge um, moment where it goes, ah, yeah, but look just behind over you, just behind you, over there on the left-hand side of the dot. That's your caller. That means we can't have nice things uh, because uh, it means that if you just extract the method normally and don't have the, the, the parens, it won't be called, which means that you lose the thing that extracted you, and now you're just a function floating free in space, right? Does that make sense? Aha, uh-huh. okay. So, so like, if there were an ampersand for when you want to pass, like, yeah. C, that would make it easier if that operator for passing a reference were separate from the operator for looking up the caller. Yeah, I, I, I've proposed something like what I call soft binding a couple of times. No one on the committee thinks it's a good idea, and it, it's got problems. And like, just because of the way JavaScript works, it means that it's incredibly difficult to repair. But I, you know, I think between that and automatic semicolon insertion, they probably screw us about the same amount. Now, is automatic semicolon insertion an official part of the language? Oh yeah, you bet. There's there's definite text in in the spec for ASI. Okay, because part I, of the grammar. When I first heard about it, I was like, so is that just a convenience thing that the browser does? Okay, so that makes sense. So there are actual, this is how this is supposed to work, and the rules are the way the rules are. Yeah. We've yeah, designed yeah. this language to be broken on purpose. <laughs> and I assume that it, it started as someone doing exactly what you said. It was just probably just, I, and I, again, I wasn't, I wasn't on the committee at the time. I assume that it just sort of made it in as uh, some browser vendor was like, yeah, it kind of sucks. You should just be able to figure out what the semicolon is in these cases. And they did it, and then, boom, now you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just seems like there are some weird cases where you would expect it one way and get you get it another. And it also varies, like, if you're used to one language that does that kind of thing one way and another language that does it a little bit different way, then, yeah, nobody's happy with the way that it handles certain cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just trying it off and making it an error would have been the right, would, well, in retrospect, might have been a better thing to do. The, the right thing to do is sort of a, a value judgment that I can't make, but yeah, it would have, might have been a better thing to do. Right, but now that it's in, if you try and pull it out, then you break a whole bunch of people's stuff. Yep, that's a no So yeah. what, what are the possibilities for creating a second language? Like both Google and Microsoft have tried to do it, but I mean, obviously Microsoft's not going to want to play with Google. 
And Google doesn't want to play with Microsoft, so the idea that... And then Apple just does their own dang thing and doesn't even look either way at anybody, you know? So, and it seems like a real great solution would be ha- to, to have a separate language, but is there any chance that a committee could get those three big players to agree on something? No, don't count out Mozilla. You know, you need four players. <laughs> well, but Mozilla's yeah. pretty easygoing. Like, they're not a problem. Like, nobody's like, oh, that darn Mozilla, they're the reason we can't have nice things. You know, they're, they're, they started us having nice things. I, if it I, weren't for Mozilla, the I, web would suck. I, I don't I know that, that there's a... I think there's more to the story in just about every statement you made about every company you said something about there. Yeah, it's fair. Uh, Microsoft actually probably did more for the web than any other company I can think of until the middle of the last decade, right? Like, you know, honestly, IE, if IE hadn't stopped so far past the mark of being better than Netscape, we would never have had serious web apps. There's just so much. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop I'll stop my little fanboy moment with, with Microsoft. The, uh, I, the way I put this is that just sort of because of the game theory involved, right, trying to get all those players to coordinate about a new thing, the next version of uh, the, the replacement for JavaScript will be the next version of JavaScript. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, you could try to bootstrap a, a quote-unquote new language, but I personally, and this is just my personal view, this is not a Google thing, this is not anybody else, this is sort of like me sort of looking at the, at the pieces on the board going, hmm. I was kind of assuming that was everything you said today. Oh, good. Ah, good. <laughs> the, the, the way I look at this is that it just seems... And perhaps this is a lack of vision on my part, but it seems implausible to me that you're going to incentivize all of these players to go coordinate on another language that's very much like JavaScript, which JavaScript could could eclipse most of the virtues of in the near future. You know, look at things like ASMJS uh, out of Mozilla or a bunch of the features that we're adding in ES6, right? Like, we're able to actually go and take value off the table with new versions of the language and with new versions of the DOM APIs that sort of take some of the breathing room away from other up-and-coming languages that might fill the same niche. And that makes getting the agreement between all of those parties to go implement a new version of something else and make it compatible with the web, to me, it just seems almost insurmountable. I mean, good luck on anyone who's willing to try and who has a language that's compelling enough to make that a real possibility. So what I hear you saying basically is that um, because JavaScript solves enough of the problems in a reasonable enough way and because it could conceivably move ahead to fill the space that uh, a lot of these other value propositions that a new language would have, it j- there just isn't enough of a value proposition for a new language to be built that everybody's going to agree on that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and as JavaScript continues to improve, and as JavaScript VMs continue to improve as compiler targets, I mean, again, look at ASMJS and a lot of the, the optimizations that we've done in the last couple of years to make other languages like CoffeeScript and even the tracer output that much that much more performant, right? That You have to have a really, really compelling mega feature to get developers to jump from one to the other. You know, I mean, for instance, the way you use TypeScript today is, is you run it in JavaScript. And the way you use Dart today is you run it via JavaScript. Um, and the same thing is true for, via Quit and a lot of other, and CoffeeScript, and a lot of other languages that, you know, you could imagine could have more efficient and uh, more highly optimized runtimes. But in the main, to get the reach that you really want, you'll probably be running them on top of a JavaScript VM for the foreseeable future. I also wonder, too, if there's, I mean, 
would we just if we did invent another language we just be inventing a new problem set for us to solve you know 10 15 down the years down the road just like where we're at with javascript right now oh yeah absolutely i mean that's the that is the legacy of legacy uh, as soon as your platform is is successful enough to encourage you not to change it quickly anymore all the problems that you thought were relatively small will become enormous uh, look at uh, windows right uh, windows is the product of its own success for good and for ill, mm-hmm. you know, same thing is, I guess, less true of iOS, but they, they don't really care so much about having enormous reach. They just would like to have, uh, I guess, from my view, um, it seems like they would like to have um, uh, all the people with lots of money paying them as opposed to all without lots of money. But, you know, Android has, has, a, has a real backwards compatibility burden now, too. And this is just sort of what happens when you're a successful platform. The, the real question is, can you as a new platform provide enough value to eclipse the last thing that's got a lot of legacy baggage, right? right. Can you provide enough of it in value in that delta to go make it worth doing? And that's just not something that, that falls off a tree. You have, to, you have to really be running at it. It's hard to do. Like I said, good luck to anybody who thinks they can. It's a, it's a really ballsy thing to do. I mean, I work on JavaScript because I view our problem as not really being a language issue. I think that we can definitely improve the world via the language. But I think our, our large problems on the web are, are platform issues, right? How do the bits play together? How do they integrate? How do they talk to each other? Or do they talk to each other at all? So, so my view is very much that improving the language that we program the web with can have some value, but there's a lot more bang for the buck to be had in fixing DOM and fixing the way we build component systems and fix, fixing the way that the pieces talk to each other than there is in changing anything about the language at all, including its, its speed. So one one last question that I have, and that is, do you think it'll ever be possible for us to sunset some of the features of JavaScript that are painful? Like That's get, a really good question. Well, we'll get to the point where it's like we've got some of these other tools that make the pain with this mostly defunct, and so if we remove it, it'll allow us to move forward in other ways. I don't know. There are some places where we've been able to to talk ourselves into a position where we're like, yeah, no one's using that, and make some changes that would be backwards and compatible. You know, this is the same burden that everybody on every major platform that's successful has, right? You know, can you change the behavior of a Windows API only if nobody's using it? <laughs> uh, can you can you take features off of the off of the web today? Uh, the answer is really only if nobody's using it. So, for instance, like we're talking now on Blink Dev about removing XSLT support from Chromium. And the question is, who's using it? It's not whether or not there's a spec for it or whether or not it's the right thing to do. It's just a question of, you know, is it is it paying for itself? Is it a feature that we would like to continue to have to support or have to continue to support? And, and what does it cost us to continue supporting it? You know, and that is definitely a case-by-case kind of decision that you answer with data. So from the Chromium perspective, we've got um, what we call use counters, which are a great way of us figuring out what percentage of the web's traffic actually uses a particular feature. And getting that kind of data out of JavaScript is probably going to be the way that we'll ever be able to make a case for or against particular features getting, problematic features getting dropped. So I heard rumor that the Blink tag isn't going to be supported in Blink. And here you are talking about features that you know everyone uses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It helps that I'm kidding. Uh, it helps that CSS marquee is now in place, and you can you can blink things using CSS in many cases. So you know you've got options, and you can make a blink web component. So you know, welcome to the future. <laughs> Yay! <gasps> so are are you also going to get rid of marquee 
as well as Blink? Because that would be awesome. There are so many websites I would visit more often. I, I don't know. I would actually have to go look at the use counters for Marquee. And I will note that the CSS working group has recently ratified a Marquee specification, CSS Marquee. Go look it up. I'm not kidding. All right. Well, well, on that downer. (laughs) No, actually, Marquee is an incredibly important feature for much of the world where text doesn't fit neatly, and you may have very long words, or you may need to scroll in vertical areas in order to get the full meaning of something that wouldn't otherwise fit. So Marquee is not a feature that the web can actually take away because our our English language preferences uh, aside, it's just it's just something you need in other in other places. So what you're telling me is pretty soon I can expect that my Kenwood MP3 player in my car will be running JavaScript for that little title show feature, huh? Yeah, you bet. Eventually everything is going to be running JavaScript. No, 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 that'll be CSS. You can do that in CSS. CSS can do that without JavaScript. Oh, okay, so they'll just have a little CSS chip on the board there and makes it marquee for me. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's uh, given the price of CPU, it'll be sentient soon enough. (laughs) Perfect. All right, let's get to the picks. Joe, what are your picks? All right, I've got two picks. The first one is an iOS game. It's called Death Tower. And I picked this up. It was pretty cheap. And it's kind of like a little sort of mini RPG where you just go from room to room. And it's really quite addictive, 8-bit type uh, graphics. Super fun, very cheap, but really just had a blast playing it. So I'm going to pick that Death Tower. And then the other thing I'm going to pick is the Samsung AirTrack which is a soundbar. I just picked one up and installed it last night, and I was so pleased with it. Uh, we just don't have enough volume coming out of our TV. We needed more volume, which is the only reason I bought it. And it's so small, it fits perfectly right underneath the TV. I was I had no idea that it did this because I just never bothered to care because all, all I was really was looking for was just more volume. But it has Bluetooth, so I was able to hook up my phone to it and play Pandora over the speaker you know, just by being in the same room, it was so nice. I just absolutely love it. This comes with a big subwoof- subwoofer that puts out really great bass, and which is also wireless, by the way, which was very cool. So I really enjoyed, I really like having that air track. It was a lot better buy than I thought I was going to get, and that's my picks. Awesome. AJ, what are your picks? I'm going to pick the movie The Host. Because it was actually a really interesting, thought-provoking movie, and it had terrible reviews. So when I first was was getting it from Redbox, I had the expectation that this was going to be something that I was seeing in order to make fun of it. Like when Twilight came out, and for the first week, every time I was with my friends, I just randomly unbutton my shirt and pull open my chest hair and say, Sparkle, sparkle, sparkle! I was kind of hoping for something like that, but it turned out to be like completely different and that it was a good movie that, that, that it wasn't just pure like nonsense entertainment, but it actually has a, a story to it and it's kind of, it's kind of cool. So I know it's a little late. Everybody else that wanted to see it has already seen it, but don't, don't pay attention to the five out of 10 on IMDb. It's actually, it's interesting. Yeah. I, have you read the book? I'm just curious. I have not read the book, but I have it both in English and in Spanish sitting right here, and I'm going to try to learn Spanish more by reading it a chapter at a time. So I've started on the first chapter. I think the book was solidly good, and I thought the movie was solidly mediocre. 
There were a couple parts where the acting was subpar, but I didn't feel that it was like so bad that it detracted from the movie, I mean, especially in consideration of lots of other movies that are extremely popular with very poor plot lines and poor acting. Interesting. All right, well, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. The first pick that I have is The Desolation of Smaug, and that is the new Hobbit movie that's coming out uh, next week as we record this, this week as you listen to it, if you got it when it came out and i'm just i'm really excited to go see it uh my wife actually got me tickets uh for my birthday and yeah i kind of dropped a hint that it had to be 3d imax so i'm I'm thrilled i am totally excited to go so um on, on the movie uh front that's something that i'm really enjoying i've also been enjoying kind of an uh, along the same entertainment lines the classic doctor who videos and you know it they're they're black and white. They recorded in the 60s. I got into the show with the, the newer kind of revitalization of the series. But David Tennant or, uh, or before? Chris Eccleston. I yeah, yeah, yeah. With that. Uh, David Tennant is definitely my favorite doctor so far. And I think my favorite companion was Amy Pond. But anyway, I love the series. So uh, I started listening to them, or I started watching them, and then I started listening to a podcast by a friend of mine named Samuel Lewis. And uh, he has a podcast series called Going Through Who, and he's going through all of the classic Who and talking about the stories and things like that. And so um, he's actually got Doctor Who Guide where you can go and get all of the past episodes. I believe you can also get them through less legitimate means like BitTorrent. And then just, you know, so then you can watch him and then you can listen to him and his panel talk about him. And it's been a really fun podcast to listen to, especially, you know, going and and listening to, or going and watching the show, and then, you know, comparing notes. Yeah, that was a little funny, the way that they filmed that, and, you know, things like that. So it's it's really good. So I'm going to I'm gonna pick both of those. And then my last pick, and I might have picked this last week, I, I've been listening to an audio book called Duct Tape Marketing by Jim Jantz, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's just been really awesome for my freelance business. It kind of gave me some ideas of some things that I can do or do better. And so if you're interested in that, you're running your own business, uh, doing any kind of marketing for a, an open source project or anything like that, it's a terrific book and you can go pick it up. I've been listening to it on Audible, so either way is is great. Alex, what are your picks? Oh, uh, I guess I mentioned earlier uh, Unlocking the Clubhouse, which is a wonderful book, which I recommend everybody who has anything at all to do with computers, please, please, please read. Uh, it's a data-driven uh, analysis of why we don't have nearly the representation that we should in our industry among uh, women and girls. And uh, it lays it out both in data and in a, uh, a series of stories uh, told from the perspective of uh, people going through the process of trying to become computer engineers. And uh, it's, it's wrenching, and it's, uh, it's incredibly, even though it was written in 2003, I think, uh, it's still an incredibly valuable insight into what's wrong with our industry. One of the things that's wrong with our industry. Uh, on a happier note, uh, I've been playing a lot of the new XCOM expansion, XCOM The Enemy Within. Um, and if you are a fan of XCOM and you have not already picked it up, I, I heartily recommend you do it. The, the new game dynamics are a lot of fun. I mean, I guess I'm kind of addicted to XCOM, so I would say that. But uh, but yeah, there it is. I guess... Oh, uh, 
there are new episodes of Have I Got News For You and Only Connect on the BBC. So if you can get those, I can't recommend them highly enough. My wife and I spend a lot of time watching those. So um, I got, I've got lots more stuff that I like, but I guess I'll leave it there. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a terrific conversation and really interesting to kind of get a behind-the-scenes look at a lot of this stuff. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.